Welcome back to Digital Health Today, the place to be to get the insights of leaders making the healthcare of tomorrow available today. I'm your host, Dan Kendall. So how are you? Are you tired of the bad news in the headlines? Fed up with the sheltering in place? Ready to begin thinking about the future or maybe just getting a little bit of good news? If you answered yes to any of those questions, this episode is for you. I've got a great guest who's going to put a spotlight on some of the tremendous progress that's being made in healthcare systems as we implement new and better ways to care for our communities. But before we get to that, I want to pass along two recommendations of things that are virtually 100% guaranteed to make you smile. Both of these are YouTube channels, and you can find the links to these in the show notes of this episode. First up is TV sensation John Krasinski and his YouTube channel entitled Some Good News. If you haven't seen this yet, you have to check it out. He's best known for his role as Jim in The Office, but in real life, John Krasinski is racking up millions of views by spending time in his home office producing a show that's making people smile, laugh, and cry tears of joy. Or maybe that's just me. I'll tell you what, take a look at episode three and see if you can avoid getting a little misty-eyed as he pays tribute to healthcare workers as only a true Bostonian can. He has four episodes out now, and in the show notes, I'll link to just the third one. You can subscribe to the channel for more. Be sure to check out his second episode, too, if you're a fan of the Broadway show Hamilton. I won't spoil the surprise for you, but right around the eight or nine minute mark, uh, some great things happen. The second good news pick-me-up I have for you doesn't come from Hollywood. It doesn't come with a TV celebrity and a professional production crew. In fact, critics lovingly describe it as meticulously underproduced. This recommendation is to check out the new show by the one and only Eugene Borakovich of YourCoach.Health and the hilarious and charming Jim Joyce of Health Beacon. See these guys in their natural habitats and their new YouTube show entitled Shot of Digital Health Therapy. I tell you, these guys are spreading some light into the world and their next episode is going to be turbocharged as they invite Lisa Soonan onto the program. Again, you can find the link in the show notes of this episode. You can also find them on the Twitters at Jimbo Joyce and at Health Eugene. So those YouTube shows are going to help you feel a bit more optimistic. And I think today's guest is going to make you feel the same thing. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world right now. But one thing that we definitely know is that at some stage, this COVID-19 crisis is going to be behind us. Regardless of what mistakes are made and what gets done right, Eventually, we will have moved past this and we'll need to focus on the work we need to do in our new normal, whatever that looks like. Which led me to ponder two key questions. The first one is based on the information that's available, what decisions can we make today to make a positive impact? And the second one is based on where we know we need to go, what can we do now to drive better decisions and prepare for the next challenge or obstacle? These are two of the questions I unpacked today in this episode. With me in our virtual studio is Dr. Zaina Kayat. Zaina is the future strategist with SE Health. SE Health was formerly known as St. Elizabeth Healthcare, which is a digital and social impact enterprise based outside Toronto. SE Health has a major focus on creating a better future for aging adults in their homes and in their communities. Zaina is faculty at Singularity University's Exponential Medicine Stream adjunct faculty in the Health Sector Strategy Stream at Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, and the author of a new book entitled The Future of Aging. Zaina, thanks so much for joining me. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. 
Before we jump into the questions, I just want to remind listeners to please subscribe to this podcast. You can find more episodes like this on your favorite podcast player and on our website, digitalhealthtoday.com. You can find us on our second home as well, along with hundreds of other episodes on Health Podcast Network, which you can find at healthpodcastnetwork.com. Zaina, you're a future strategist. I love that title, and I have to admit you're the first person to come onto the show with the title of future strategist. I also have to admit, I really don't know what a future strategist does. So can we just start there? Can you start off by explaining what a future strategist does? So I'll tell you one thing, what it doesn't mean, but I often get introduced is a futurist. I am not a futurist, right? I don't try to pontificate about the future or predict or, you know, share the trends and just do that as a thought leader. So me and my CEO were very deliberate about what my role would be, which is really just to have some unit in our organization, which is 112 years old, that wants to be around for 112 more years, to have our eye out 10 plus years of where the changes are happening in health and care and then in aging more broadly, and then kind of translate those signals back into choices we make today. And that's kind of what we do is really protect the future and in some ways future-proof our organization as best we can. Well, I think it's probably safe to say that the future that you and your colleagues were thinking about and working toward a few weeks ago was very different than the future we're confronted with today. And you know, many people are asking, are we ever going to get back to normal? And I think the consensus largely is that normal will never look the way it was. Now that we've gone through this experience and we're currently going through this experience, we're going to have to adapt new ways of working and new expectations. So I want to come on to the future. But first of all, let's just talk about what's being done today. What are some of the examples of some of the decisions that are being taken to really try to address this and move the ball forward from a digital health and a health transformation perspective? So you're absolutely right. This is arguably an event that will change the course, uh, not only of our lives in healthcare, but really every sector of everything in society. It's unprecedented. So I'm going to keep my remarks relegated to the healthcare realm largely, because that's where most of my expertise is. So I would say, uh, although in some ways this level of change this fast, you know, we were never ready for. On the other hand, it has also uncovered, you know, in addition to vulnerabilities, some incredible resilience and creativity that I didn't think we had it in us, to be honest, in healthcare. Decisions that I'm seeing happen very, very on short order uh, with immediate impact are choices around business continuity, particularly in healthcare, where we have no choice but to do what our calling is and our work every day is to heal people. A couple other ones that are, that are jumping out at me that are making an impact is, you know, data and evidence and transparency and science is kind of having a new type of a rebirth. It's not this conceptual thing, but people actually want it every minute of every day and it's valued. And then, you know, choices that are being made to deal with the immediate health crisis, but trying to manage the tension with some kind of economic resilience on the back end. I don't think we figured that one out enough, but it is great that there's 200 different experiments going on across 200 different nations, and we're all learning from each other. So it has been a fascinating explosion, really, of innovation. Are there specific things that you're observing, whether it's in Canada or North America broadly or in particular parts of the world, that have reduced some of the barriers and friction that have prevented some of the progress that we've been talking about for many years? 
Yeah. So there's a lot of sayings out there right now that, you know, more has happened in days than has happened in decades in terms of healthcare innovation. I think this is particularly around digital and challenging the constraints that have been around for 150 years of modern medicine, constraints around time, distance, and space. So the rule books are ripped up. The barriers to innovation that we've toiled against for 10, 15, 20 years, they've been smashed. You know, wisdom that we've had for a while now seems like a relic from a different era. And that's because it doesn't work anymore in the crisis. So in particular, you know, I call three things that I've seen happen. More has happened in days or moments even than uh, decades before. Absolutely digital as an alternative channel or virtual for delivering care services Literally, fee codes open up overnight that allow the care provider to recover for their time, whether that's a doctor or a nurse, or even in my world, you know, a home care aide delivering home care. Uh, the second I've seen in the U.S., it hasn't yet happened in my country in Canada, is cross-licensing across state borders. HHS in the U.S. kind of opened that up in days, and that's been weeks and months and years of debate. And then the third is just around data, data liquidity, data opening up real-time observing. So for example, there's a startup that basically exploded overnight in Canada, kind of like Babylon Health in the UK. It's our version called Maple. Well, in a day, they can show exactly how many people had a consult, how long they waited, what was it for. Before, you had to wait a year, if not two years, to get that kind of data because it was mined using pretty old-school academic methods. So those are kind of things in the day-to-day operating of healthcare And then I take it one level higher. I'm not keeping a log of all the ways entire industries have pivoted in a matter of days. You know, tests for the virus from two days or five days to now hours, if not minutes. Vaccines already in clinical trial. You know, James Dyson made a ventilator in something like 10 to 15 days. And then, you know, I've seen beer companies, liquor companies, Canada's biggest hockey manufacturer, Clothing companies, auto companies, they've all pivoted their supply chain to produce equipment and supplies. Grocers upping their wages overnight for their frontline staff, despite you know weeks and years of debates about that before. And it goes on and on. So just a, really, like I said, an explosion and barriers to innovation being smashed. It really shows you what's possible when we all work and put our shoulders against making this stuff happen, right? And that's part of the frustration, but also part of the relief that this is beginning to actually be implemented because inventing a great technology, but having it sit on the shelf or not creating a business model that will allow it to be utilized is frustrating. Creating a technology and having the users who can benefit from it not ready to adopt it is frustrating. Now we seem to have this perfect storm where the technology exists. It's been ready and it's just been waiting for its chance to come up off the bench and get some playing time on the field. So now we have a user set that's ready, both clinical staff and users, patients, prospective patients, just people who are concerned about their own health and people they care about. And you also have policymaking and businesses that's aligning behind the use of this technology. So it's really powerful. A hundred percent. And I say it's not just the technology that's kind of getting called up off the bench. Business models were already in place and care flow models, workflow models. So, you know, classic example where we're on the shoulders of those who did the edge work before us, the early adopters, the ones who just relentlessly 
kept trying this, even though every inertia was against them and there was no business model. And so if we hadn't had that kind of runway, I don't think we could have turned it on so quickly overnight. So credit to the early adopters. You know, just one thing that there's a metaphor that's been used a lot that this is a war, but it's not against a person or a country. It's against this virus. And so now there's a lot of reflection. If you look at any war or other major crisis, you know, massive beneficial effects, aftershocks on innovation and technology. I mean, we wouldn't have radar or even the internet. Like we wouldn't have this call right now if it wasn't for military tools that evolved in the crisis. And then afterwards, they become opened up to other use cases. In this case, it's not that the adjacent use cases will be other industries. It's come in healthcare. And I'm excited about that it will be here to stay. I don't think we will go back to largely analog and single channel modalities for delivering care. I really feel like this has opened it up to become really mainstream and not only for the use of a pandemic. The other thing you mentioned was around digitizing the interaction and being able to mine all the data from that interaction. So in your role as a future strategist and understanding what you do as you look at various trends and technologies and adoption and being able to project what that means in a real tangible way to businesses and practices going forward, what do you see? Let's dive into that a little bit more. What do you see as the benefit of that sort of technology being used and that data being developed? In its simplest form, at Exponential Medicine, we talk about us shifting from let's call it an evidence-based health system or a reimbursement-based health system to an intelligence-based health system where data informs decisions in much shorter cycles. And that's kind of what I'm reflecting on. You know, there's another data discussion in the future of healthcare around all the data and the abundance and the omics and, you know, how we're going to have like lakes of data, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about being able to make smarter choices and understand the impact of those choices pretty much in real time. And we just never did things that way, right? You know, the the normal way data played out in healthcare has been stuff happens in an analog context. And then, you know, a very narrow group of problem solvers called research scientists have access to that data. They analyze it six months, a year, two years later, they publish the paper. And then that is used to inform policy, which then changes practice. And then the cycle starts. And we all know it takes about 17 years from published evidence that it should be the new practice to it becoming the standard of care. Well, we've smashed that down to like hours. (laughs) You know, it's unheard of. And so I'm just talking basic data about access, about wait times, and about how, on what basis decisions are being made and what the consequence. And I think this is going to set us up really nicely to take that paradigm into other clinical contexts as we get through the the crisis stage. You know, it's a shame that it's taken a crisis to create these opportunities for these solutions, but I'm glad that the solutions are available. I'm glad that it's giving an opportunity for leaders and organizations and brands to step up and to demonstrate their value and how they can make an impact and and literally drive better outcomes for people by making their products available. And it's a, a great thing for the industry. This is really our time to shine as we really have an opportunity to demonstrate our value and make a real impact in the health continuum. 
The other question that I mentioned at the top of the program is what can we do now that will drive better decisions and prepare for the next challenge or the next obstacle? Because at some stage, hopefully sooner rather than later, this will be in our rearview mirror and we'll be able to do a postmortem on what happened right, what happened wrong. But in the middle of it, we need to be thinking about not just what we can do today and the changing data that we're responding to on a daily basis and how we can make better decisions tomorrow, but really over the short to medium and even long term, what are some of the things that we can be doing to prepare for that and help get better data and make better decisions? So what are some of the things that you're seeing, things that we can be doing now to prepare for that eventual situation where this is in our rearview mirror? So I don't think there's a debate that life will not return to normal and we will not go back to working exactly the same ways we did before. I mean, everywhere, but I think definitely in healthcare and and it would be a failure if we were to do so. So what do you do about it? It's been fascinating for me because us who do strategic foresight, again, we have methodologies that are on the five, 10 year plus horizon. So you can make bets today that you know are gonna set you up well for later. We're now pivoting our methods to do that in a crisis context. So I'm now doing strategic foresight for three to six months from now, which is a new methodology for me. So I think the framing that we're using, and I think it works, is there's two futures you need to start to plan for now and make some very smart choices while you're getting through the crisis because you want to be able to leapfrog forward on the back end Mm -hmm. instead of be static or go back. So I think the one stream is just resilience. So you can play out where you're going to have exposures or cracks or vulnerabilities because, you know, the second aftershocks are going to come as well. Like we're never going to be back to it's all gone. So there are some things that were exposed that you need to make some choices now to be ready to be there through the crisis to get resilience, business resilience, your staff's resilience, et cetera. That's more, let's call that defensive. Then there's the offensive. There's the growth strategies, which is now that it's a new normal, what new currents can you ride or actually create because you've got this incredible opportunity to go after? And I think the smart organizations are starting to plan for that while dealing with a day-to-day crisis. And what the literature shows, and I completely agree, You got to have a separate team to help you with that stuff that cannot be the day-to-day people trying to keep the business running. And that's where, you know, most of us who lead, let's call them innovation functions in these large complex orgs, we're now stepping in to take that role. You mentioned when we spoke last week that you teach at a university and you did your first online lecture. So can you tell us a little bit about the ecology of a startup and what the people that you're teaching and the organizations that you work with, what it is that they want to replicate when they think about a startup mentality or a startup ethos? Yeah. So, I mean, two observations on literally overnight changing how I teach. And I've been teaching since 2006 at the university in a very analog format, like everybody else. So two things. One is in my course, I actually teach how big complex health organizations try to behave like a startup. And so I have a course that says, think like a startup. And I talk about the ecology, like you said, of startups and how big orgs are trying to replicate that. And I'm like, that's exactly why we behaved the way we did these last 10 days. You know, what do they need? Really good product market fit. Oh, that's what you just talked about right now. (laughs) Product market fit has been just perfect. And that's allowed us to move forward. What else do they have? massive pressure. They have this one metric called the burn rate. 
and they know the cash in the bank and they know exactly what day they won't make payroll. That's a lot of fire under your butt to be very ruthlessly focused on results and nothing else. And that's exactly what these large complex systems have been able to do in a very short order. So there's just a lot of parallels. I I say now the health system behaved like a startup for three weeks at full scale. So that's like fascinating for me to observe. I think the second thing is more meta in terms of as a faculty member, for me, it was no problem literally overnight to convert my course to a virtual course. This is how I work every day. I'm constantly online, both in my day-to-day work and in my international kind of thought leadership. But I didn't realize how much of a leap that was for most other faculty. We probably got an email, I'd say every 10 minutes from somebody at the university to help coach us on how to teach virtually. So it was a huge change for, I'm gonna say 80 or 90% of our faculty and many of our students. This Wednesday will be my third week teaching virtually. I think we landed it, like we're fine. We'll finish out the semester, no problem. Now, before I let you go, I would love for you to share a little about your book. I mentioned it at the top of the program. The book is called Future of Aging. I heard about it on the podcast that you did with our friends Ben Tingey and Jay Gerhardt on their podcast. That show is called The Sherpa's Guide to Innovation, which is another great podcast. It's also available on Health Podcast Network, where you can just Google for The Sherpa's Guide to Innovation. The book is called Future of Aging. What can you tell us about it? So I'm a future strategist for Canada's largest organization that predominantly works with aging adults and keeping them at home as long as possible. So I think we see something like 18,000 unwell seniors a day and try to keep them well. And so, you know, I figured out really quickly, I'm almost about two years into the role, that we better have a very clear normative view of possible futures of how aging is evolving. And aging is a broader context, not just in the context of healthcare, as we pivot our whole company from being a home care provider to being kind of all things aging. That's an evolution we're taking. So we needed to have, you know, a really good, well-researched view of that. And that was with this one-year project with a major design firm in Canada, Idea Couture, was to, you know, my, my metaphor is if Jesus was trying to spread Christianity, they had a Bible. <laughs> this is like our Bible both to guide our daily work as the futures team of my company, but uh, more importantly, to inform, influence, and shape the conversation and really shape the future for all the other people in the ecosystem that we work with and touch. So it's kind of got a dual purpose. Much like this podcast was originally going to be about the book, but we pivoted. My book tour has, you know, kind of been put on hold. I was supposed to be all through Europe this summer, but we know we're starting to get it out through other channels, as you've seen. Absolutely. And I do encourage people to go and listen to the Sherpa's Guide to Innovation. We'll have a link to that in the show notes for this episode. How should listeners get in touch with you and learn more about your work? Um, so a few ways, of course, you can get to me on LinkedIn. I'm very active on Twitter. So I think I'm the only one with my name spelt the way it is, Zaina Kayat, <laughs> verbatim. We have a website at sehc.com slash futures. And just ping me in any one of those channels. And, uh, you know, if anyone wants to do something dangerous on aging and home, give us a call. Well, Zaina, thanks very much. We'll have links to all of that in the show notes for this episode. Thank you for being on the program. And please stay well, stay healthy, and stay home if you can up there in Toronto. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. 
Listeners, you can find the links to Zaina's Twitter and LinkedIn profile by going to the show notes for this episode. There you can also find a link to her book, The Future of Aging, so be sure to check that out. We'll also have links to those YouTube videos that I mentioned at the top of the program, Some Good News by John Krasinski, as well as A Shot of Digital Health Therapy by Eugene Borakovich and Jim Joyce. Be sure to visit our website at digitalhealthtoday.com or find our episodes as well as hundreds of others on Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. But no matter where you find us, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and our newsletter to be kept up to date with the latest episodes, news, and events. This has been another episode of Digital Health Today, a production of mission-based media. Music and audio engineering for this episode was by Ivan Urich. I'm Dan Kendall, and I've been your host. Thanks so much for tuning in, and until next time... Keep on innovating.